0: Chapter 12 of A Dog Crusoe and His Master This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia The Dog Crusoe and His Master by R.M. Valentine. Chapter 12 Wanderings on the Prairie A War Party Chased by Indians A Bold Leap for Life For many days, the three hunters wandered over the trackless prairie in search of a village of the Sioux Indians, but failed to find one, for the Indians were in the habit of shifting their ground and following the buffalo. Several times they saw small, isolated bands of Indians, but these they carefully avoided, fearing they might turn out to be war parties, and if they fell into their hands, the white men could not expect civil treatment, whatever nations the Indians might belong to during the greater portion of this time they met with numerous herds of buffalo and deer and were well supplied with food but they had to cook it during the day being afraid to light a fire at night while indians were prowling about one night they halted near the bed of a stream which was almost dry They had traveled a day and a night without water, and both men and horses were almost choking, so that when they saw the trees on the horizon, which indicated the presence of a stream, they pushed forward with almost frantic haste. Hope it's not dry, said Joe anxiously as they galloped up to it. No, there's water, lads, and they dashed forward to a pool that had not yet been dried up. They drank long and eagerly before they noticed that the pool was strongly impregnated with salt. Many streams in those parts of the prairies are quite salty, but fortunately, this one was not utterly undrinkable, though it was very unpalatable. "'We'll make it better, lads,' said Joe, digging a deep hole in the sand with his hands, a little below the pool." In a short time, the water filtered through, and though not rendered fresh, it was, nevertheless, much improved. "'We may light a fire tonight, do you think?' inquired Dick. "'We've not seed engines for some days.' "'Perhaps twouldn't be better not,' said Joe. "'But I dare say we safe enough.' A fire, therefore, was lighted in as sheltered a spot as could be found, and the three friends bivouacked as usual. Towards dawn, they were aroused by an angry growl from Crusoe. "'It's a wolf, likely,' said Dick, but all three seized and cocked their rifles nevertheless. Again, Crusoe growled more angrily than before, and springing out of the camp, snuffed the breeze anxiously. "'Up, lads! Catch the nags!' "'There's something in the wind, for the dog never did dat afore. In a few seconds, the horses were saddled and the pack secured. "'Call in the dog,' whispered Joe Blunt. "'If he barks, they'll find out our whereabouts.' "'Here, Crusoe, come!' It was too late. The dog barked loudly and savagely at the moment, and a troop of Indians came coursing over the plain." On hearing the unwanted sound, they wheeled directly and made for the camp. It's war party, lads! Fly! Nothing'll save our scalps now but our horses' heels, cried Joe. In a moment, they vaulted into the saddle and urged their steeds forward at the utmost speed. The savages observed them and, with an exulting yell, dashed after them. Feeling that there was now no need of concealment, the three horsemen struck off into the open prairie, intending to depend entirely on the speed and stamina of their horses. As we have before remarked, they were good ones, but the Indians soon proved that they were equally well, if not better, mounted. "'It'll be a hard run,' said Joe in a low muttering tone, and then looked furtively over his shoulder. "'The varmints are mounted on wild horses,' Leastways, they were wild not long gone them chaps can throw the lasso and trip a mustang as well as a mexican mind the badger holes dick hold in a bit henry your nag don't need a driving a foot in a hole just now would cost us our scalps keep down by the creek lads ha how they yell said henry in a savage tone looking back and shaking his rifle at them an act that caused them to yell more fiercely than ever this old park horse give me much trouble the pace was now tremendous pursuers and pursued rose and sank on the prairie billows as they swept along till they came to what is termed a dividing ridge which is a cross wave as it were which cuts the other in two thus forming a continuous level. Here they advanced more easily, but the advantage was equally shared with their pursuers, who continued the headlong pursuit with occasional yells, which served to show the fugitives that they at least did not gain ground. A little to the right of the direction in which they were flying, a blue line was seen on the horizon. This indicated the existence of trees to Joe's practiced eyes, and, feeling that if the horses broke down, they could better make a last manful stand in the wood than on the plains. He urged his steed towards it. The savages noticed the movement at once and uttered a yell of exultation, for they regarded it as an evidence that the fugitives doubted the strength of their horses. "Ye haven't got us yet, muttered Joe, with a sardonic grin. If they get near us, Dick, keep your eyes open and look out for your neck else they'll drop a noose over it, they will, afore you know they're near, and haul ye off like a sack. Dick nodded in reply, but did not speak, for at that moment his eye was fixed on a small creek ahead, which they must necessarily leap or dash across. It was lined with clumps of scattered shrubbery, and he glanced rapidly for the most suitable place to pass. Joe and Henry did the same, and having diverged a little to the different points chosen, they dashed through the shrubbery and were hid from each other's view. On approaching the edge of the stream, Dick found to his consternation that the bank was twenty feet high opposite him and too wide for any horse to clear. Wheeling aside without checking speed, at the risk of throwing his steed, he rode along the margin of the stream for a few hundred yards until he found a ford at least such a spot as might be cleared by a bold leap. The temporary check, however, had enabled an Indian to gain so close upon his heels that his exulting yell sounded close in his ear. With a vigorous bound, his gallant little horse went over. Crusoe could not take it, but he rushed down the one bank and up the other, so that he only lost a few yards. These few yards, however, were sufficient to bring the Indian close upon him as he cleared the stream at full gallop. The savage whirled his lasso swiftly round for a second, and in another moment, Crusoe uttered a tremendous roar as he was tripped up violently on the plain. Dick heard the cry of his faithful dog and turned quickly round, just in time to see him spring at the horse's throat and bring both steed and rider down upon him. Dick's heart leaped to his throat. Had a thousand savages been rushing on him, he would have flown to the rescue of his favorite. But an unexpected obstacle came in the way. His fiery little steed, excited by the headlong race and howls of the Indians, had taken the bit in his teeth and was now unmanageable. He tore at the reins like a maniac, and in the height of his frenzy even raised the butt of his rifle with the intent to strike the poor horse to the earth. But his better nature prevailed. He checked the uplifted hand, and with a groan, dropped the reins, and sank almost helplessly forward on the saddle, for several of the Indians had left the main body, and were pursuing him alone, so that there would have now been no chance of his reaching the place where Crusoe fell, even if he could have turned his horse. Spiritless and utterly indifferent to what his fate might be, Dick Varley rode along with his head drooping and keeping his seat almost mechanically while the meddlesome little steed flew on over wave and hollow. Gradually, he awakened from this state of despair to a sense of danger. Glancing round, he observed that the Indians were now far behind him, though still pursuing. He also observed that his companions were galloping miles away on the horizon to the left, and that he had foolishly allowed the savages to get between him and them. The only chance that remained for him was to outride his pursuers and circle round towards his comrades, and this he hoped to accomplish, for his little horse had now proved itself to be superior to those of the Indians, and there was good running in him still. Urging him forward, therefore, he soon left the savages still further behind, and feeling confident that they could not now overtake him, he reined up and dismounted. The pursuers quickly drew near, but short though it was, the rest did the horse good. Vaulting into the saddle, he again stretched out and now skirted along the margin of a wood, which seemed to mark the position of a river of considerable size. At this moment, his horse put his foot into a badger hole, and both of them came heavily to the ground. In an instant, Dick rose, picked up his gun, and leaped unhurt into the saddle. But on urging his poor horse forward, he found that its shoulder was badly sprained. There was no room for mercy, however. Life and death were in the balance. So he plied the lash vigorously, and the noble steed warmed into something like a run, when again it stumbled and fell with a crash on the ground, while the blood burst from its mouth and nostrils. Dick could hear the shout of triumph uttered by his pursuers, "'My poor, poor horse!' "'he exclaimed in a tone of the deepest commiseration "'while he stopped and stroked its foam-studded neck. "'The dying steed raised his head for a moment. "'It almost seemed as if to acknowledge the tones of affection. "'Then it sank down with a gurgling groan. "'Dick sprang up, for the Indians were now upon him "'and bounded like an antelope into the thickest of the shrubbery, "'which was nowhere thick enough, however, "'to prevent the Indians following.' Still, it sufficiently retarded them to render the chase a more equal one than could have been expected. In a few minutes, Dick gained a strip of open ground beyond, and found himself on the bank of a broad river, whose evidently deep waters rushed impetuously along their unobstructed channel. The bank at the spot where he reached it was a sheer precipice of between 30 and 40 feet high. Glancing up and down the river, he retreated a few paces, turned round and shook his clenched fists at the savages, accompanying the action with a shout of defiance, and then, running to the edge of the bank, sprang far out into the boiling flood and sank. The Indians pulled up on reaching the spot. There was no possibility of galloping down the wood-encumbered banks after the fugitive, but, quick as thought, each red man leaped to the ground and, fitting an arrow to his bow, awaited Dick's reappearance with eager gaze. Young though he was, and unskilled in such warfare, Dick knew well enough what sort of reception he would meet with on coming to the surface. So he kept under the water as long as he could and struck out as vigorously as the care of his rifle would permit. At last he rose for a few seconds, and immediately half a dozen arrows whizzed through the air, but most of them fell short. Only one passed close to his cheek and went with a whip into the river. He immediately sank again, and the next time he rose to breathe, he was far beyond the reach of his Indian enemies. End of chapter 12.